0: Hi, my name is Reina. I'm going to be reading Revelation 20 and 21. The final judgment. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from His presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. As recorded in the books, The sea gave up its dead, and the death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed from her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them, and they will be with His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these things and will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, mortars, and the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol, worshippers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death."
1: When I was six years old, my greatest concern about the future was that I wanted to be a Sith Lord rather than a Jedi Knight. Like, I can actually remember being torn up about this because the bad guys in Star Wars were always so much cooler than the good guys, but they were bad, right? But they got the red lightsabers and the black capes and all that super cool stuff. It kept me up at night. Uh, Contrary to that, my my wife Nanny's... And she nannies a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and she was leaving their house recently, and the porch light was left on. So she says to the kids, hey, we've got to go turn that light off, because it's good to to save and conserve energy. And the six-year-old, without missing a beat, says, yeah, we need to turn it off, because then the polar bears won't die. Want to talk about a contrast, right? Right? I know there's some prickly issues involved there, but what I'm really just trying to demonstrate is that the biggest change within my lifetime is how we view the future. People who actually study the differences between generations say that Generation Z, our current high schoolers and university-age people, late 90s, early 2000s is when they were born, that what sets them apart from earlier generations is actually a pessimism about the future. I mean, who can blame them? They grew up after 9-11, after the 2008 financial crisis. They grew up having Wi-Fi available to them all the time to access a 24-hour news cycle that is almost always negative. And is it any surprise that in the midst of all of that, across the generations, there's been a marked rise in anxiety? Because fear, fear is about the future. Fear is our body's predictive measures, taking stock of what's around us, and saying, I don't like what I see, and so we start to get ready to fight, to flee, or to die. And I'll never get tired of of sharing this. I've probably shared it before, but the most repeated imperative in Scripture is do not be afraid. Is it any wonder in a Scripture that has that as its primary imperative one of the things we're given consistently is a vision of the future. Because I think what Scripture is trying to, to tell us, to say to us, is that we do not need to fear the future. I'm Ricky, if we've not had a chance to meet yet. And I've been honored to, to start and now end our essential series and It's been a ride. I encourage you. These resources are available to you always now. Go back and check them out. But particularly, um, you're not going to be able to get a full vision of of what the Bible has to say about the future. Well, probably ever because there's a lot there. But this sermon is actually a two-parter. Kirsten last week talked about our individual destiny as believers and how that's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. It's really, really wonderful. You've got to check it out to get to get the full picture. Today, we're kind of zooming out and going, life, the universe, and everything. And what I want you to walk away with is knowing that you do not need to fear the future because Jesus is on the throne, because it's better than we could possibly imagine, and because God will be there. So, you may have guessed because that scripture was read for us just a moment ago, but we are in the book of Revelation today. I wanted to set you up with the appropriate fanfare. I asked Golden if she would play the final countdown at the start of the worship set, and she said that that would be inappropriate. I asked Rob if he would put together some CGI video of beasts coming out of the sea, or maybe even just a clip from the most recent Godzilla movie, and he said that he didn't have the time for it. So here you are with a complete lack of the appropriate fanfare. We are in the book of Revelation. Welcome. In all seriousness though, um, I, I got to choose Um, the passage for this week. And I chose it because it's, this passage in particular is very personal to me. I have a really emotional reaction to a certain song by Radiohead called Videotape because the lyrics in the course go, when I reach the pearly gates, will you be on my videotape? Mephistopheles is just below and he's reaching up to grab me. And that gets me a little bit emotional when I say it or when I listen to it because in the tradition I was raised in, um, There were pastors that literally said that these books being opened in heaven, it would be like movie night. And on the screen would be all of the things that I'm ashamed of, all of the dirty and wayward thoughts that I've ever had, that I would be hung out to dry in front of the entire cosmos. And maybe, just maybe, if I prayed the right prayer at the right moment, whatever was left of me would be dragged through the pearly gates. I can actually remember pacing back and forth in my basement as a young boy, worried that the earth would split open and hell would swallow me whole. And there's a lot of people who will open this book and they will talk about it in a way that spreads a lot of fear. And behind that is a a certain assumption about the book of Revelation, a certain assumption that the book of Revelation is primarily a book about what, when, and how. And I wanna say today that I don't think that those are the primary things in perspective. They're there for sure, but the primary thing in perspective is actually who. You'll notice in our text, it's the great white and shining throne that is above all creation. It is front row center. And it's actually front row center throughout the whole book of Revelation. There are seven throne room scenes. And one of the longest descriptive passages in the book of Revelation is of God's throne room. Now, now why might that be? Well, most scholars argue that the first audience of Revelation, and I think it's always important to pay attention to the first audience that receives a prophecy, because you would assume that God's gonna reveal something to a people that's gonna be helpful to them, right? The first audience of Revelation was almost definitely Christians suffering intense persecution from Rome. You've got Christians essentially waiting in irons to be thrown to the lions. And what matters to them in that moment? What, when, and how, maybe. But to them in that moment, it sure doesn't feel like Jesus is on the throne. It sure doesn't feel like the one that they're proclaiming Lord has the power. It seems like Caesar's actually the one that's in control. But the book of Revelation points out clearly that we do not need to fear the future because Jesus is on the throne. There's actually a delightful kind of poeticism in the book. It flips back and forth from someone who looks like the father to the lamb that was slain being on the throne in those seven different scenes. And here at this last moment, we are told it is the lamb's book of life. It is Jesus who is sitting on that throne. It is Jesus who has been ruling and reigning over all creation from now until this final day. And mixed up in all that, I've learned to change my perspective on this text. I've actually learned to see these books being opened in heaven as a comfort. And I think you might too, because while we might not be waiting in irons for the lions, we've all suffered, or we've all seen suffering, we've all seen evil. And worse than that, we've seen the people who perpetrate that evil get off and go and live what looks like an abundant and healthy life without any problems. Scripture asks again and again and again, why do the wicked prosper? And that is a deadly serious question. Because if the wicked can go off and prosper, it's like what we do doesn't matter. And there is nothing that kills the human spirit quite as slowly and insidiously as the poison of futility. But these books being opened in heaven, they make the exact opposite statement. They say, no, 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 no. It all matters. Every cutting word, every abuse suffered at the hands of someone who should have nurtured, every child buried in an unmarked grave, every bullet that's flown out of a gun at someone for the color of their skin, it all matters. Every deed is written in the library of heaven. God is merciful and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love, yes, and He does not forget evil. It all matters and it will all be answered for. How? That's kind of the million dollar question, isn't it? How will this be answered for? How is somebody gonna parse how an abuser was once abused? How is somebody, how is the heavenly host gonna decide this Christian who has perpetrated acts of evil and yet says they believe and trust in Jesus? How, how hot is the lake of fire? I I don't know. I don't know how. But I know who. It is Jesus on the throne. It is Jesus who has the pen that writes in the book of life, and I trust him. I trust him with this far more than I would ever trust myself. Thank God it is not me who is the judge of the universe. Thank God it is not our politicians or our judges. Thank God it is not the church. Thank God it is Jesus who judges. We do not need to fear the future because Jesus is on the throne. He is the one who judges. And part of what I'm, I'm trying to do here is, um, is, is help all of us reconnect with the fact that in Scripture, God's judgment is a holy, good, and wonderful, and beautiful thing. It is something that is prayed for. Rise up, O Lord, and judge the earth. It is God's course correction for the universe. I want you to see Revelation 20 and Revelation 21 as connected. We catch this, actually. Well, before that, though, there, there is a lot of severe passages in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of severity around the language of judgment, but I think part of the way to understand that is to know, well, that the old things, they, they need to die, as our scripture says, right? That the death and pain and mourning and tears, these things, they need to be led out to pasture in order for this new and glorious thing to come. these old things that need to die, evil and death and pain and injustice and the spiritual forces behind the worldly powers that are allied against the forces of good, well, these things will not die quietly. It will be an act of God in the final day. It will come down out of heaven from God. And this old thing being wiped away makes space For the new thing. And this new thing, well, there's one commentator I've read recently. You know, when we talk about the new thing, um, we're not actually given a lot of details. Kirsten did a really good job of reminding us of this last week. There aren't a lot of really solid details concerning what is coming towards us, right? And you can interpret that a few different ways, but there's one commentator I read this week who says that the new and glorious order is more easily pictured in terms of what it replaces than by an attempt to describe what is largely inconceivable in our present state. I think that's a really beautiful thought, that there actually aren't that many details because we lack the capacity to comprehend how wonderful this thing will be. As Paul wrote, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can fully know what God has for those who love him. We do not need to fear the future because we're taught in Revelation 21 and 22 that it is better than we could possibly imagine. Now, just because we're not given every detail doesn't mean we're not given some And what I want to spend a couple minutes doing is just showing us some of the details that we are given, because I think when the details are scarce, they actually are are even more important. So what is there in this new thing that the voice from the throne says it's making, he is making? Well, first, as Kirsten said so well last week and puts more into than I do this week, stuff is there. There are things there. We're not floating up into some ethereal realm of ideas. It's, it's earthy. It's, it's, it's the stuff that in some way we're kind of used to. But at the same time, and C.S. Yes, Lewis and the Great Divorce is really good on this, it's more. It's more real. You know, at the beginning of our series, I said that the word of creation is that it is good. Well, the word of the book of Revelation is that it gets even We see that development in scripture from naked vegetarians hanging out in the garden in a state of like animalistic bliss to a garden city in the final day. There's development. And all of the greatest art is always at the same time surprising and familiar. So it reaches out to us, I think, this this vision and says all that you already know that is good and true and beautiful is there and even more so. What else is there? There. Well, besides stuff, there's actually diversity there. Um, there's a little bit of a textual variation in our passage this week. Um, some translations read, he will be their God and they will be his people. And other translations read, he will be their God and they will be his peoples. Now, I firmly believe that the second reading is correct, not just based on manuscript evidence, but based on the thrust of the New Testament, which when it talks about the future, always describes every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And that's a wild idea. The tribes are still tribes, the tongues are still still tongues, the nations are still nations. Diversity isn't going anywhere in that final day. And I'm, it needs to be said, I'm sincerely sorry for the way that we continue to fail in this as Christians and have failed at this in the past in really deadly ways. This is the final vision of Scripture. So if you've ever been hurt or discriminated against in some way by the church, it's been a lack of fidelity to Jesus' final vision of the future. Diversity is there. What else is there? Abundance. This is one of my favorites. You can blow right by it in the passage, right? To the one who is thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without cost without cost, there has never been a day in human history where you got something for nothing, ever. There's this principle in mathematics called the Pareto Principle, P-A-R-E-T-O. You should go look it up. It blew my mind, but it's basically the idea that in any system, 80% of the commodities will be had by 20% of the population. And this isn't just about people and goods. This is biodiversity on the planet. This is stars and galaxies. There seems to be written into the way that we currently comprehend the world, some form of inequality. And this final day, that all disappears. That is all revealed to be part of the old thing that needed to die. Everyone will have what they need without cost. We can't even imagine that. We've tried and it doesn't work when we do, but out of heaven from God, this reality will come. What else is there? There's adventure. The vision of the New Testament, I'm firmly concerned, I firmly believe, is that we as Christians are being raised to rule and reign with God in this new creation. If you go a little further than our passage, passage in, into Revelation 22, it says that, that they will reign forever. Dallas Willard has a wonderful little take on this. He says that perhaps it would be a good exercise for each of us to ask ourselves, really, how many cities could I now govern under God? If, for example, Baltimore or Liverpool were turned over to me with the power to do what I want with it, how would things turn out? An honest answer to this question might do much to prepare us for our eternal future in the universe. There is adventure. It might not just be harps and halos, it might be dragons and treasure. The heavenly city, we're told later in Revelation 21, has gates that are open to to the Lord only knows what, but we are made to do things and to make things. But imagine that on this day, we will do and make those things free of the fear of failure. Free of that tendency we all have to put our identity wrongly into the things we do, because we will be perfectly enfolded in the love of God. Now you may be starting to catch this already, but part of being a Christian is actually saying that that adventure starts now. There's a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation by, A local pastor named Daryl Johnson. He's one of my old professors. And he argues that the whole book of Revelation is actually a a discipleship book. It's it's a book that seems to be about the future, but it's about the future to inform our present. He actually says this, our picture of the future automatically shapes the way we live in the present. So then all of these visions, all of these things we are shown, they're not just a comfort, they're actually a call to action to action, they're a call, as the language of our text says, to conquer, to endure. That's a key word throughout the book of Revelation. So then the question I would would ask all of us, and I ask myself out of this is, what type of future does your present demonstrate that you believe in? What type of future does your present demonstrate that you believe in? Now of course, and I want to leave you with this friends, there is one more person there in the future. You'll catch it, it's it's repeated almost too much. God is there, God is there, God is there, God is there. You know, I. it's another story about my wife looking after kids because I think uh, if you want a vision of the kingdom, watch somebody care for children well and you'll get a really good idea of what God is like. and. I got to go with her as she took a few of the kids to a pool. And there's this one little three-year-old guy that was not having it. He was terrified of the water, right? Terrified in that way that little kids are where they like pretend that they're not scared by saying, oh, actually, I just want to go over here and eat a snack. Or, oh, I'm looking at this tree. But he would keep looking back at the water, like, you know, just terrified out of his mind. My wife got him into that pool. You know how she got him into that pool? She went into the water herself. She opened up her arms. And she said, come on in. Don't be afraid. I'll catch you. I've got you. Take my hand. Trust me. It's going to be better than you think it is, better than you can imagine. You're going to love it. I'll be there with you. We do not need to fear the future because God is there. In some mysterious way, he's reaching out to us from that murky and terrifying place we call the future and letting us know that He, the self-generating Creator of all things, will be eternally and unreservedly present to us. That that blessing we say over each other, may His face shine upon you, Revelation 22 says, His face will be shining upon us as our daily reality. And He reaches to us from that place and He says... I'm here, I'm waiting for you, trust me, it's gonna be better than you could possibly imagine. I've got you, and most of all, and please hear this, he says, do not be afraid.